0: All right. Well, I am extremely, extremely honored to be here. Uh, I've told some of you um, I have immense respect for Brad, um, for his ministry, but also his character um, and his love for the Lord. And so to be asked to uh, preach at his church, um, it's not a small thing to me. It's a very heavy thing to me. Uh, And I've been praying all week that the same care and love that you guys get week to week uh, that God would use me in a in a channeled way to give Brad's love uh, in the face of Jesus through His Word this week again. Uh, so I'm honored to be here, um, and I'm grateful to be to be preaching on the subject I am. Brad did not give us a vacation. Um, he gave us some very heavy topics to preach through. Um, and at first I was excited, but this week I was very uh, bogged down, and I was yearning for a vacation. Uh, so yeah, this is this is heavy stuff. This is not easy. Uh, in fact, I think this is one of the hardest topics to be talked about in entire theology. Um, you can probably argue the Trinity would be the the first, maybe one A. But I think union with the Trinity, our union with God Himself, would be probably one B in terms of the hardest things to try to describe uh, from Scripture. What does it mean? We'll try to talk about it here tonight, uh, this morning. Sorry, by the way, our church, Good Shepherd Bible Church on the East, is normally in the evening. Uh, So if I say tonight, I'm sorry, I just normally preach in the evening. I'm very sorry. So I mean this morning. But I'm glad glad to be here with you all. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 19, and then I'll tack on another verse, verse 27. We're going to read it. And then I'm going to kind of ask to punt on that text just for a little bit. This is the text Brad gave me. It's a wonderful text, but in order to kind of get around to it, I need to do some, some ramp up to it, and then we'll look at it at the very, very end. All right, but I want to read it. I kind of want to capstone the sermon uh, with the text here this morning. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 19, and then I'll tack on verse 27. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Jump with me down to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Today's topic, Brad asked me to... uh, to teach and preach about the church and the church's union with Christ. As I had already mentioned, I think this is one of the most underappreciated, most unknown, and quite frankly, the weirdest theological topic that we have in Christianity. And so my big question for today, when we talk about union with Christ... I'm trying to answer the question, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, there's two things when we ask that question we have to answer. We have to ask, what does it mean in its nature that we are united to Christ? What is our nature of union with Christ? But also, what does it mean for us as the church? What kind of import does this have in my life? How does this change the existence of our church life day to day, week to week? What does it mean? So, I want to offer a quick little defining statement about the church and its union with Christ, and then I'm going to try to unpack it. First of all, I'm going to try to say some scary things that are hidden within the statement. Then I want to try to add some clarifying things to it. And then I think, hopefully, in that way, I will explain or have defended the statement. And then we'll ask specifically, what does this mean for you and me today? Here's the defining statement. If you're a note taker, uh, you can write this down. Defining statement about the union with Christ. Because of the church's union with Christ, she is the true body of Christ made to discover, demonstrate, and declare God's saving love. Okay? Because of the church's union with Christ, that's a statement of fact, we are united to Christ, because of that union, she is the true body of Christ made to discover, demonstrate, and declare the gospel of God's saving love. So here's some of the scary things we're going to try to discover today. You probably don't know that that statement is scary, but it can get really scary. We'll try to answer some of the challenges here. Okay. Again, in my statement there is a truth about the nature of the church, but also what the church is then to be doing. The nature of the church, we are united to Christ, and therefore, because of that union, we are the true body of Christ. That's the nature of the church. And then here's the work and the mission of the church. We, are, we have been made, then, because of the union with Christ, we have been made to discover, demonstrate, and declare God's saving love. Okay, That's the nature and the work of the church. Okay, Not scary so far. The scary part is to try to make sense of the church's nature and mission and try to pair it up specifically in a union kind of way with the nature of God himself. In other words, we start talking about the very nature of God and the work or the mission of God. That is somehow united to the nature and to the work of church. We have to pair these things up. We are in union together with God. We have to bring the nature and work of church together with the nature and work of Jesus, and now these things are starting to get scary. Right? Why? Because first we have to connect the two natures between the nature of the church and the nature of God. And if you're looking for a specific point of challenge, maybe a specific question, you might be able to ask yourself this question. How literal is Paul when he says... We are the body of Christ. How literal is Paul when he says, You are the body of Christ? Okay? That's a tricky question. It even kind of gets a little scary if you really think about it. Right? Um, Those of you who have grown up in Catholic backgrounds, this might be particularly tough for you to wrestle with and answer for those of us who are distinctly Protestant and understand what that distinction is, we might get a little, when it comes to thinking through how literal Paul is when he starts talking about you are the body of Christ. Okay? So we try to connect the two natures, we've got to try to do that, but we also have to try to connect the two missions, between the church and the mission. How closely together, how united is the church's mission with the mission of Christ himself. And maybe this is another question that's helpfully challenging for this question. Does as the Protestant reformers talked about it, does salvation belong to the church? Old Latin phrase extra ecclesiam nulla salus, which means outside of the church there is no salvation. How true is that statement? If together, the church is united with the Son. It's tricky. So I think what we'll try to do is merely try to stick with our statement. If we could prove our statement, maybe there's some clarity. If we could draw this statement out from the scriptures, maybe there's going to be some clarity there and we can stick with what I've just said. That because of the church's union with Christ, she is the true body of Christ, made to discover, demonstrate, and declare God's saving love. But to get that, we have to talk about something really hard, and that is what Paul has used 21 times in all of his letters, this term called the mystery of Christ, or you might see it, the mystery of the gospel, okay? or the mystery of Christ in the gospel. You might hear that phrase even together. So I want to try to provide this little map this little theological understanding of this idea of mystery, and then try to explain why it matters. This is going to probably feel like a little bit of a fire hydrant. I'm going to give you a lot of text, and I encourage you, don't try to write down all the text. Just write down the references, and maybe you can go back and look. But then just try to catch what's being said. Maybe that would be an easier way to go about it. If you're a note-taker, try to write down the three theological things I'm going to give you, and maybe the appropriate references, and that might help. All right? This idea of mystery, or in Greek, this word mysterion, Paul uses again 21 times, different times in his letters, and Paul is almost exclusively the only apostle that talks about this idea. But what Paul uses, when Paul uses this idea of mystery or mysterion, what he's trying to do is to connect the nature and mission of the church with the very nature and work or the mission of Christ. He's using it to describe this union between the church and Christ himself. Some of you are already thinking, wait, that's not true. Hold on, we'll talk about it. When, we, when Paul talks about this idea of a mystery, what he's talking about is something that was once hidden, this once hidden thing that has now been revealed. All right? I listen to a lot of true crime, which probably makes me a, a psych- psychopath, that's okay. Um, this is not that kind of mystery, right? Uh, where we're trying to figure out who done it, right? This is not that kind of thing where like nobody knows anything and uh, if you're the killer, you're probably the only one who knows, right? It was Colonel Mustard in the lounge with the rope. We knew that all along, didn't we, right? Um, no, this is something that God has always planned, that has always been in the mind of God, has always been in the revealing stage, but now has been, been made very plain in some way or another. This is what Paul means when he talks about this idea of a mystery. Again, this mystery that the church is united to Christ. Okay? There are three particular things that Paul talks about when he talks about this idea of of mystery. And again, some of you who may have studied this already say, like, no, there's only one thing. Hang on, hang on. It's important in theology. Maybe this is a little this is a little sidebar. It's important in theology that we say all that needs to be said about a topic and be consistent and not just say things one way. Okay? It can be easy in theology to get a little hobby horse ish and start talking about one thing and one thing specifically to the detriment of other aspects of theology and therefore we misrepresent something. Let me give you a for instance. If we only talk, we're so consumed about the trinity of God, the triune nature of God, that he exists as both three persons in one, we can get a little hobby-horsish, especially in America, where most people talk about God and his oneness. We can try to be a little bit proactive and against that idea and say, no, he is three. He is three. Each person is distinct. Each person is unique. But if we beat that drum so much that we forget to talk about His oneness, then we will have misconstrued the reality of God. He's both. He's not just one aspect. He is three and He's one, and we must speak of Him together in that way. You almost have to speak two different ways the same way. You have to be consistent about that. In the same way, when we talk about this idea of mystery... I want us to talk about three things, okay? We need to be able to say three things, but we all need to bring them together in one way, okay? So this is what I'm talking about. And I'll start off with the one main thing. The mystery that Paul is talking about is Christ. This once hidden thing in the mind of God from eternity past, this one plan of redemption for all things, God has planned in His Son, Jesus, but now it has been revealed in Scripture. I and mean, even go to Hebrews 1 to talk about this, right? Long ago and at many times, God spoke to us by the prophets. But now he has spoken to us by his Son. This Son is reflected in the very scriptures that we hold. When we look into the pages of scripture, we see Christ himself. This is why John would refer to him as the very Logos, or the Word of God. and This is why we refer to our scriptures as the Word of God, right? Because they reveal to us this spokenness from God of Christ himself. Jesus even himself said, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I reveal something to you. I am the final pinnacle of God's mysterious plan to redeem all things. It is Christ himself. You can write down Colossians 2, 1-3. through This mystery who is Christ Himself. Paul says, For I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged. Be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. So go on to say this, Christ." In you, the hope of glory. Whatever else Paul is going to say about this mystery, the substance of this mystery is nothing short, nothing less than, nothing greater than certainly of Christ himself. Christ, both his person and his work. Christ the person, Christ his work, which again, we have to be faithful in talking about both things at the same time. Christ is the full redemptive plan of God, hidden, but now revealed. But Paul will go on to say, but it's not just any Christ. If I can say it this way, it's not just any form of Christ. Okay, It's a particular kind of Christ. It's a particular form of Christ, shape of Christ, mode of Christ. Specifically Christ in his crucifixion. And specifically Christ in you. We go on to say this in 1 Corinthians 2, another passage you can write down, 1 Corinthians 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and with lofty wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Later on in that passage, Paul would say that this is because we impart to you, through preaching, we impart to you a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In other words, it's not just any form of Jesus. In other words, it's not merely just this ethereal or theoretical Jesus or this kind of like up in heaven, perfectly holy, perfectly glorious, totally set apart from you kind of Jesus. He means the Jesus that took on flesh, that walked your road, who felt your pain, the joys and sorrows that you know so well, and yet he died for your sins, was crucified and was buried and stuck in a tomb. This Jesus... This revelation of God in Christ for you, the atoning sacrifice for your sins, this, Jesus, is the mystery hidden for all ages. And again, not just one set apart from you, but one who now dwells within you. This is why he says, I want you to reach the full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And again in Colossians one twenty-seven, to the saints God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you say, well, how is it possible for this crucified Jesus to live in me? How is, how is that possible? That a bodily resurrected Yet, scar bearing Jesus lives in me. I find this only happens through the indwelling of God's Spirit. We have this through Romans 8, right? Paul makes it very clear in Romans 8, 9 through 11, you can look it up, that this idea is that the Spirit of God now dwells in you. And then he starts using Trinitarian language in a very kind of a exchange-oriented view. If the Spirit of Christ dwells you, within you, well then, my friends, you can be assured that Christ dwells in you. And if it's he who fills Christ is in you, then, my, my friend, you can be sure that God himself dwells alongside of you. He uses an interchanging language of Christ, the Spirit, the Father. They all dwell in you by virtue of the Spirit and what He's doing in you. And my friend, in that way, through the Spirit and dwelling in you, through faith in the Word of God, you have the Spirit of the living, crucified Jesus among you. You are united to Him. And the reason that this union has taken place again, don't, don't forget the fact that God has actually taken some of the, not some, all of the initiative in our union with Christ by Jesus taking on our flesh. He himself initiated this union by taking on our flesh. He united himself to us through his incarnation. My friends, that is a huge gift of mercy to you and to me. That God would not ask us to come his way that God himself in Christ would come our way. And so as one author put it, Christ is the starting point for a true understanding of the notion of this idea of mystery in Paul's language. There are not a number of mysteries with limited applications, but there is one supreme mystery, Christ, with a number of applications. And this is what I mean when there's two other things that Paul uses to describe this mystery other than Christ, but my friends, we don't mean anything less than Christ. He is the substance of this mystery, but in Christ we find a myriad of applications, and we'll talk about two general ones today. But in this way, it is on us, the church, to continue to discover, go deeper into our understanding, our knowledge of, our intimacy of, God and his union with us through Jesus. Again, God has had eternal plans in Jesus to unite himself to you. Maybe if I can say it even a little bit more personally, a little bit more sharply, God has an intimate love and passion with being united to people like you and like me. Why? Because his heart is full of saving love. And so part of the church's mission is to continually, ongoingly discover the mystery which Paul goes on to say can never be fully understood. Keep discovering the realities of this beautiful union. Second, we have Christ is the mystery, but also the mystery is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Paul talks about Christ being the mystery, that is the supreme mystery, but in the mystery of Christ uniting himself to us, there is this unbelievable mystery that reconciliation is not just probable, but it's actual. It's not just a theoretical reconciliation, but it is an actual promise, banked on the blood of Jesus, has really risen from the grave kind of reconciliation. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 7 through 7-10. In Him, or through union with Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things In union with Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Now again, that's where most theologians and you and me have to just simply tap out. And say, boy, I don't know what that looks like. But if that is one-tenth true, I want a part of it. If God in Christ is now beginning through the church to reconcile all things, things in heaven and things on earth to Christ... My friend, I want in. Because I know nothing about this idea of all of us living in a unified way. Aren't you sick of all the divisiveness? Aren't you you sick of the quarantining not just of body, but of soul and of spirit and of mentality and of politics? My friend, God in Christ, through the means of the church, is at work to reconcile all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in a mysterious way, to Himself. A plan for the fullness of time. Whereas Romans 11.36, Paul gets to the end of his theological statement and ends in this great doxology. And he says, for from him and through him and then back to him are all things. To him be glory and praise forever. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Reconciliation and also this idea of unification. Paul harps on this idea of God is not just at work to reconcile us to God and reconcile us to each other. In other words, he's not content to just merely let us act differently or be differently with some of the stuff broken down. He actually is at work to unite our hearts, to make us not merely homogenous, but unified in spirit, unified in heart. He says in uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians, When you read this church, you can perceive my insight into this mystery of Christ, which he has made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a profound mystery. Bad people get good things just like all the good people got the good things to begin with. The tortoise and the hare, they've done the race and both get the trophy. It's astonishing. Gentiles who are the furthest away from the promises of God, those bad people who have not made a step towards righteousness and doing the things that God has commanded, those people are getting in. They are unified, united to all the other Jews who have been promised so long ago through the gospel. This is a profound mystery. It's incredible. Paul would go on to say that of this gospel he was made a minister according to gift of God's grace, which was given to him by the great working of his power. You remember that day when Paul was saved? He must have been blown away when he saw Christ on that road and all of a sudden the mystery was unlocked and he saw before him in his own heart this idea that God is at work not just reconciling all things bad people to himself but now unifying all things Jews and Greeks in the same church. Are you kidding me? Blew his mind. But he's also out to unite the world. He's at work unifying the church through Christ but my friends, here's another part of this mystery. He is intent on uniting the world through the church. And if you're not awakened to this reality, my friend, this is where it's going. We're asking, what does union with Christ mean? Oh, it's, it means so much for our eternal present mission here in this life. But my friends, God is at work uniting the church through Christ, but now He's at work uniting the world through the church might blow our minds a little bit, this might make us uncomfortable, but my friends, it does give us the mission to be a part of. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19-23, Church, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put... All things under his body's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. God is at work to reconcile the church to Christ, but then is at work subjugating all of his enemies underneath the feet of his body, the church, Christ the head. But my friends, we are listed as part of God's redemptive, mysterious plan that He is at work uniting all things, including the world, to Himself. You're there. Providence Church is there. That is astonishing and fully mysterious. If you can explain that, you let me know. But all I know is that God is full of love and mercy. And so... It is on us then as the church who have this divine mission to be at work demonstrating the very union we have in Christ. If Christ is going to be our head and we are going to be his feet and the rest of the body, my friends, we need to start acting like it, don't we? We need to start demonstrating this reality, that this is absolutely true. We sang a song last week at our church. It's called, Oh, How Good It Is. I love this song. You guys might even go sing it here, Oh, How Good It Is. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn for the weak, find strength, the afflicted, find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging to his body. Oh, how good it is when we embrace his command to prefer one another and to forgive as he forgives. And when we live as one, we all share in the love of the father with the son in the spirit. Oh, my friends, what a mystery this is. When we begin to demonstrate this union with Christ that we have been given, my friends, it changes this world. It changes our communities. It changes our friendships. And it might sound small, but my friends, it is upside down kind of worldly. When you can look at somebody who has treated you poorly and forgive because you have the forgiveness that you long for found in Christ, you've been united to Him. You have the kind of acceptance and belonging that you've always craved with other people. You have that in union with Christ and so you turn now and offer belonging and forgiveness and acceptance to one another. My friends, it flips the world upside down. It might seem small. It might seem insignificant. But it's God's divine mystery of uniting all things to himself. Things in heaven and things on earth. Third, the mystery is proclamation. This gets a little weirder, maybe a little unexpected, but it's also profound. Going on in Ephesians 3, chapter 7 through 10, we've read this verse, but Paul says, This gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which he gave to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things so so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God gave me the task to preach this gospel, to preach this mystery, to make known to every single person what are the unbelievable mysteries of being united to Christ and being a part of His mission. I get to preach that, and now as I preach that, God is now stumping the minds of eternal authorities by this great mystery. Again, I think these are things that we have a hard time dabbling in because they are so graciously extreme. But again, I want to say that the church's preaching isn't any kind of preaching. It's preaching that actually reflects the kind of body that we are united to. In other words, our preaching as the body of Christ starts to take the shape of the very body that we are united to. And don't forget that this body bears scars. Don't forget that this body is not just any body, it's a crucified suffering body. Yes, a glorious one, praise God, but a suffering, scar-filled body. Paul has this awareness that this mystery, proclaiming this mystery, will get you killed. It'll make you suffer. If I can say it this way, if as the true body of Christ through union with Him, we already through union with Him theologically possess the wounds of Christ upon us, we should fully expect to collectively embrace the very sufferings that put them there. If through union with Christ we already have the nail-starred hands upon us, we should fully embrace that in this life we will embrace the same kind of sufferings that place them there. Paul says, Ephesians 6:18 through 20 Church, pray at all times in the Spirit with all supplication and prayer. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Later on in Colossians, he would say, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. As we preach this mystery, and as we demonstrate this mystery by how we live, and then as it comes out of our mouth, both in worship, but also in service and in evangelism towards others, my friend, we should be prepared to suffer. In other words, the life of Christ produces a death-like existence here below, so that we might trust not in the joys of this life, but in the resurrection to come. This is a profound mystery. And so, my friends, we declare the gospel both in what we preach, what, what, what Paul said very clearly, the only thing that I knew about you, or towards you, was Christ and Him crucified. What I declare to you is this mystery of a bloodied Savior for you. But also, as you begin to live in that suffering, your body, or the church's body, or the capital C collective body, begins to take the shape of the body with which we are united to, and that is a suffering body. As one author sums it up, given Paul's understanding outlined above, we can see that the mystery of the gospel is supremely the crucified and resurrected Christ, Who indwells us and joins us to his body as his church, as part of a glorious cosmic reconciliation of all things in him, demonstrated powerfully in the incorporation of Jews and Gentiles into one body of Christ, a reality so sublime it's to be preached at the risk of imprisonment or death. That is the mystery of Christ. Maybe put more simply, the mystery is a crucified Jesus through his unified body as they proclaim him Jesus at work through his unified body as they proclaim him So again going back to our statement because of our union with Christ in some deep and spiritual way that's hard to explain hard to understand we are the real body of Christ There is a dynamic spiritual synergy between our body and his body. Yes, Jesus has his own separate body, and yes, we are present down here below, but my friends, even as Paul said, it's very much pictured like in marriage, where a husband and a father, a husband and a wife would leave their father and mother and be joined together, and those two, though separate, will become one flesh, to the point now where even their bodies are not their own. Are they their own? Sure, but that's not the point. There is a greater union together. And in the same way, is Christ up in heaven with His body? Sure. Are we down here below in our body? Yes, but my friends, there's a greater spiritual reality that's going on. We are one and the same. We are Christ's real body here on earth. When we suffer, He suffers. When we groan, He groans. When there is atonement, it is real for us right here and right now presently. And we reflect all that's going on in his body in our very own. Because of her union with Christ, the church is the real body of Christ made to discover, demonstrate, and declare God's saving love. Now, I told you I'd get back to this text. 1 Corinthians 12. Maybe you're still there, maybe you're not. I want to go back and and read just a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I really want to center on verse 27. I think it's the main point of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12. We are the body of Christ. And is it a metaphor or is it reality? Yes. It's a wonderful picture. But it's also deeply spiritually true. You are the body of Christ. Verse 27. He makes it very clear. Now you are the body of Christ. That's a true statement to be believed in, to be hoped in, that will get you through hell in this life. That'll send you through the other side of the grave. That'll get you through your deepest sins. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. But you are the body of Christ. And here's what this means for Providence Church. And individually, you are members of it. You are vitally, individually important to the mission of the church and the kingdom. And no one is spared. And you can go back through all the arguments of verses 14 through 19 and you can say, well, I'm just an eye. I'm nothing. I've got no great function. I mean, if I was a foot, I could kick Satan. Or, I don't know, I could do something great, but all I can do is see. I'm just a I'm just a pinky toe, man. I, I had nothing, my friend. That's not true. Because the reality is, Jesus died to unite pinky toes to the body. You're eternally loved. You are his body. But you're also individually a member of it. You contribute much. And even if we want to be, like, on a human level, realistic, okay, and say, okay, you're probably not doing a ton, probably doesn't feel great, or you might feel like there are saints who are doing so much more. That's never been the point. That has never been the point. The point is always for you to embrace the reality, both on a theological, faith-based level, but also on a very functional level in the life of Providence Church, to be simply you. Right here, in Christ. Some of you have very small things. I saw saw a uh, Babylon Bee article this week of a mother. I didn't write it down, but something like this: like a mother who's frustrated by only taking care of, of costly, infinite souls, right? Like at home, like you know, like a mother who's frustrated. All I do is take care of the kids, not knowing that what God has asked her to do, which might feel eternally small, maybe insignificant, maybe even frustrating, has eternal consequence. You might be only making one disciple. You might only have one person in the wake of your life that you're sharing the gospel with. But my friend, it's eternally significant. This came all too real for me this week when I had uh, one of my best friends, actually, from uh, youth ministry several, several years ago, who at one point in his life walked away from the Lord Uh, earlier this week, decided to return to the Lord and accepted Christ and now desires to be baptized. We've prayed for years. And it feels small and honestly I look back and I was like bemoaning how much little work I actually did or how much impact I specifically had in this man's turnaround. I felt really small and insignificant, as if God I should have been more should have been doing a lot more than I was convicted, and I'm just a toe. And it's okay. Because Jesus died to unite toes to his body in a beautiful way. God has an eternal destiny, an eternal mission for toes. And God did use me. I'd be stupid and silly and even arrogant to say that God didn't use me in particular ways. Again, we're just seed planters. That's all we're doing. God's the one who gives the increase. It's all his work. So where are you serving? Will you keep going, please? For the sake of Providence Church? For the sake of the kingdom? Will you keep showing up? But also, will you do it in a way that actually starts to tune into the reality that even if you're just a toe, you're God's toe and he loves you? In Christ, he has united toes like you to himself and has an eternal love and passion and intimate one with his toes. Will you dial into that? I hope you will. Because of your union with Christ, you are the body of Christ made to discover, demonstrate, and declare God's saving love. May God, by his grace... Give us this kind of church. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this profound mystery that you have given to us. That you, through Christ and through his reconciliation of all things and the very gospel that we proclaim as a way to bring this about, Father, you desire to use us. So, Father, may Providence Church and Good Shepherd Bible Church be churches that discover, demonstrate, and declare your saving love in a way that highlights and trusts and delights in the union that we have with Christ. Father, be with this church. Be with Brad. Give him uh, rest and and even just the sense of this kind of union together, even though he's far away. Uh, Give him a great encouragement of his body here uh, this morning. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.